0: The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives, and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. Today we talk with Deborah Delisle, President and CEO of the Alliance for Excellent Education, a Washington, D.C.-based national policy, practice, and advocacy organization. The Alliance is dedicated to ensuring that all students, particularly those who are traditionally underserved, graduate from high school well-prepared for success in college, work, and citizenship. Deborah talks with us about making SEL equitable for underserved communities and advice for educators and parents who want to get involved in policy conversations but don't know where to start. Here are your hosts, Mia and Andrea.
1: How are you doing? How's it going? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Andrea, I have to tell you, I mean, you know, in general, in my life, things are going okay. But, you know, I feel like this is a pretty frustrating time Mm -hmm. in history to Mm. be an American. (laughs) And, you know, I'm glad we're talking to someone today that has worked at such high levels in policy around education because I don't know what's happening. (laughs) I mean, I know there are things that are crazy that are happening, and I don't actually know how to deal with them. Like last night, I just cleaned every inch of my oven and stovetop. That was how you were coping. Yes. That thing is spotless.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I-, I feel just exhausted personally. I think it's a difficult time to think about how to move forward and correct some of the things that we need to in our country and our systems and also I have very young children and I worry for them. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm just also personally tired. I'm just
1: yeah. tired. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, like, given the state of affairs and given that I feel as an individual kind of helpless, and mm-hmm. that is a very overwhelming feeling I have to say that it is actually the thing that gets me really motivated every day to come to work because mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know what I can do about this. But what I do know <laughs> is that I can go do a job where I really feel like I have you know some kind of contribution to a movement, to an effort, to actual programs mm-hmm. that make a difference. And I can just, you know, hope that this is going to have some effect in the future, right? That there's going to be a new generation of people who have been educated in a different way
2: mm-hmm.
1: and conduct themselves differently and rise to the positions where they have power and influence and mm-hmm. will have had this really solid foundation in social and emotional learning. And that will be reflected. It's a good way to look at it. I mean, I guess I do
2: try to let my work feed me. And also, I kind of feel like I should be doing so much more. You know, like there's all these other right. things that I should be doing. Like out knocking on doors. Right, or just like, <laughs> no, and just exactly. talking to people and being more sort of involved, just yeah. engaged and involved in politics and policy. But a lot of days, I feel like I can't even make dinner. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? <laughs> so, what? Yes. yeah, it's it's kind of overwhelming. And I feel like it's kind of seeping into the lives of young children. I mean, in many ways, depending on who the yeah. child is, right? Uh-huh. There can be detrimental effects on on children based on the current state of our politics and our legislation and the implementation enforcement of those. But also I see it, you know, in my kids, in my home, like asking me about, you know, is so-and-so a bad person, you know, right. is it because they believe different things. Right. And I, I just feel like. That's an an additional point of being overwhelmed. It's like, how do I, like when I'm angry or when I'm feeling like I can't have productive conversations with other adults, how do I have a conversation with my kid that sets them up for success later? Well, hi, Deb, Andrea.
3: I'm Mia. Hey, Andrea and Mia. Great to be with you good to be with you. It's
2: awesome to have you here with us. And you've been in, you've had a lot of different roles in the education space. I'm curious though, I always, I think it's really interesting to hear about people's very first job. What was the very first job you ever had?
3: First job ever, not in education? Nope, ever. My first job ever was actually, I worked in a medical lab In a large city. And actually, I'm sure nowadays would not be able to do the work that I did. I actually did tests. I I also cleaned glass tubes and ran centrifuge machines and (laughs) tested urine samples as well. Did those as well. So yeah, I worked in a medical lab. Is there anything that you
2: learned there that you carry through? Maybe something you're like, I'm never doing this
3: again. (laughs) Uh Well, I think it stressed for me the importance of, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my career, with my life. I actually did want to go into medicine. And so that was a natural, uh, probably a natural fit for me to to do a part-time job there after school. But then simultaneous to that in the summer, for whatever reason, this sounds really, really bizarre, but I actually wanted to work a cash register. So I'd had the job during the day full time in the summer working in the medical lab. And then in the evenings, I would go to a... Uh, similar to a Target, it was called Bradley's. It was in the New England states and I ran the cash register there. But it was really frustrating at the end because without technology from today, you had to actually sit and count the money and try to figure out like why you came up 13 cents short or maybe why you had five extra dollars in your cash register. Anyway, so I think it just proved to me the power of education and trying to figure out that I just really didn't want to do either one of those jobs for the rest of my life. So <laughs> it's important, yeah. yeah.
2: I was raised by nurses, almost every woman in my family as a nurse, and at about age 10, my mother asked me, you know, what do you want to be when you get older? And I said, definitely not a nurse. Oh, <laughs>
3: That was the, the one thing I did I think a lot of people do be. that in education as well. So I'll just share with you, if you could ever share, it's my favorite John Lennon quote. And he said when he was growing up, his mom always told him that the secret to life is to be happy. And then he went to school, and the teacher asked the kids in the class what they wanted to be when he grew up. So he said, I want to be happy. And the teacher said to him, "You don't understand the assignment." And he said, "I said you don't understand life." <laughs> so, I say now I have a grandson now, and I know that everybody will be saying, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" So I'm going to teach him to say, "I want to be happy." So mm-hmm.
1: very nice. Wow. That's I wish I kind of fits into, into all
3: the work that you that folks one. do every day, right? right. It really is. That's, that's
1: the hope. So so Deb, (laughs) at some point then you found yourself gravitating toward education. Was there sort of a pivotal moment or did you kind of know just, you know, through the coursework you were doing in school or how did that kind of start that way?
3: So it's kind of interesting. My trajectory through education and my career pathway has never really been linear, nor has it been similar to other folks. So interestingly enough, at first, let me say on the front end of this, I'm just really happy that it actually became my life pathway because it's fulfilled me in so many ways. And in addition to that, I've just gained so much from the people with whom I've interacted, and certainly the kids with whom I've interacted, who taught me lessons every single day. But I actually did start out wanting to go into medicine, and I knew that that was going to be an extended educational pathway. So it was purely a financial point of view. I was raised in poverty. I went to school primarily on what was then called the National Defense Student Loans, a precursor to the Pell Grants today. And when I knew I had to further my education, I really didn't have the wherewithal to figure out how to pay for it. Merely a college roommate, her mom was a teacher, and said, I think you'd make a really good teacher. Now, I don't know why, what that was based on, but I thought, okay, I'll give it a shot. And from the moment I stepped into those classes, I just fell in love with everything that you could do every single day to just be incredible in the lives of kids. And so it sent me on a pathway that's just been so enriching. So I have to thank, I guess, my college roommate's mom.
2: What grades did you teach? What classrooms were you in?
3: Oh, my gosh. I've taught everything from kindergarten through I've taught in in university classes as well. My very first job in Connecticut was teaching in a bilingual grade two classroom. And interestingly enough, the bilingual language in that school was actually Italian. And there were many individuals who had come into that large city in order to, as construction workers, marble workers, et cetera, I mean, it was a Title I school, and little did I know at the time that I was actually, it was a wonderful program the federal government had. And so every year that I stayed in that school, I ended up depreciating some of my loans. So by the time I ended up leaving that school district, I didn't owe a cent on my federal student loan program, which was awesome. And I'm hoping that they can resurrect something like that again. But it was second grade, it had forty-two second graders, and I wanna send notes of condolence to those kids because (laughs) when I think back to what kind of a teacher I was versus what I think I am now, you know, and the knowledge of brain research, for example, has just advanced so much and I don't know that I was fully prepared to take on 42 students. And at the time, there really wasn't anything known as an instructional leader in a building. So the principal was there to manage the building, get kids through the school, make sure teachers had everything correct. So I didn't have great mentors when I first started out in my career. But my absolute, absolute favorite experience teaching was in middle school. I love those kids. I love it. I just love those kids still to this day. And it's very, almost like this kind of strange relationship you have with kids because you're helping them to grow up and you're helping them to make this transition from a very protected elementary school environment and getting them prepared to go into the big high school Um, And the kids every day are either insecure or very secure or overly confident in their own abilities. And they struggle every day just because of the changes within their own bodies, as well as in the growth and mindset of their brains. But I love that. I just love it. And I love middle school teachers to this day.
1: I have to say that was also my favorite. I uh, have also, in my past, been a classroom teacher and a school counselor, and in both cases, really liked working with the middle school kids the most, and
3: also they exhausted me the most. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you're on your game all the time, right? And kids at the middle school level, I had so many great examples of kids at the middle school level being so candid, whether it's, you know, I, wore, I remember one day wearing a sweater in the school and I didn't really like it. And at the beginning of class, I taught language arts in a pre algebra and math class. And I remember walking into class one day and the student said, where did you get that sweater? I said, oh, it's new. Do you like it? He said, no, it's about the ugliest color I've ever seen. <laughs> so the next day it went into a bag to be donated somewhere. And later on his mom had heard about it and she made him apologize, I said, no, you know what, because my husband wasn't honest enough to tell me that that was not a great sweater for me. And then on the other hand, you know, I had prepared this science lesson that I just thought was so fabulous, spent a lot of time and energy on it. And the very first day, one of the students slammed his books down and said it was totally an irrelevant lesson. And that is because a natural disaster had happened. It was an oil spill that had happened years ago. And he thought it was much more important for the kids to learn about that than the prescribed curriculum, which had to do with with the human body. So it was a great lesson for me to just always be on my toes, but even more importantly, to develop a relationship with kids that really has to do with them feeling comfortable enough to say, this is what I want to learn, or here are the strengths and talents that I bring to the lesson, or this is what I already know about, and therefore to inform lessons. And now how many, you know, decades later we're talking a lot about student agency and student voice. And before it even had a name, it was actually being impacted in my classroom that way. And how did you get more into the policy side and sort of looking at,
2: you know, the creation implementation of policies? We've spoken to a lot of educators in our sure. time. And there are many who I think are driven in that direction after their experiences in the classroom.
3: Yeah. So again, if I think back to my career, it is not very linear. I didn't proceed through the traditional way of I'm a classroom teacher. And then I had a goal of next I'll be a principal and next I'll work at central office and next I'll be a superintendent. And in fact, I actually have you know, transitioned in both directions. I was a classroom teacher. I became a central office administrator and then returned to the classroom and then became a principal and then uh, worked in central office. Actually worked in central office as a curriculum instructor and then went went to being an elementary school principal. So it was a different kind of trajectory for me. And in every position I had, I always thought, oh, this is the best position. I love this position. and I'm going to retire from this position. But I had incredible people around me and people who often believed in me more than I did myself. So they would suggest to me, perhaps you'd like to take this route, that would be really wonderful for you. And then all of a sudden I found myself as a superintendent in a large urban district on the east side of Cleveland, Cleveland Heights, University Heights. Still today, it's the most meaningful work that I've ever done. And while I was there, I got a call from a search firm who asked me if I would like to apply for the position of the state superintendent. And I was like, really, like me? And I say that because, you know, when I was at the district level, I would always say or question, what are those people in Columbus thinking, the people down at the State Department of Ed? And then suddenly I realized that if I even had an opportunity to do that position, somebody would be saying that about me. But I did not know that I had a very strong network of supporters within the state. And whenever the search firm would go out to say, what qualities would you like in somebody as a state superintendent? my name would pop up. So finally I thought, okay, I would always pursue, and I followed this, I'd always pursue the one position that I would take. I would take that position and pursue it if I would always wonder about it in the future if Mm -hmm. I didn't pursue it. Does that make sense? Right. And so I, you know, I went ahead and I interviewed and all of a sudden, you know, here's this girl who grew up in a large city in poverty and tenement housing, you know, sitting with the governor of Ohio answering questions about, so why do you want to be a state superintendent? (laughs) And I was still trying to figure out whether or not I even wanted to do that job. But it thrust me into a role that was just so incredible for me, incredibly challenging. But brought me a lot of insights into how powerful leadership can be and how important it is to create an incredible team around you. A team of people sometimes who think like you, but also can oppose you and challenge your thinking as well. So, obviously, with the state chief's position, it became a political position, but it also became one in which I fully became ensconced in the policy world. And then that gradually led me to the U.S. Department of Education.
1: So I have a question for you, Deb. You were speaking about how in certain positions you would look up and see like, what are they thinking there?
3: Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, you, exactly. you know, And
1: certainly at the high level positions that you've had, you must have garnered some amount of criticism or pushback or something. And, you know, because there are big decisions that you're having to make. And so how do you just personally then deal with that and knowing, like you were saying, I know what it's like to be that person being critical. Like what goes on for you and how do you kind of deal with just the pressure of that really?
3: Yeah. I think in a number of ways, but I think one thing that has been really powerful for me is gathering people around me who both think like I do, as well as people who would challenge my thinking. And so when I go into making a significant decision that I know is going to impact the lives of educators, parents and their families, or even students themselves, I try to put myself back into their shoes. And I try to remember what it was like to be in the classroom when, in fact, I'm going to make a decision or a policy regulation that stems from a law, and how would that be interpreted in that place. It doesn't mean that I can always make it work for everybody at that moment in time, but I do a lot of due diligence on the front end of gathering information. And then I start to ask myself some real probing questions, and I ponder it for a bit of time, such as, what's the worst thing that can happen if we do do this? Or what's the worst thing that can happen if we don't? Or what's the best thing that can happen if we do it? And what's the best thing that can happen if we don't? And sometimes you just have to go with your gut after you take everything in, because you also have to be a very deliberate decision maker in a leadership role. So I think it's the gathering of information. It's the reflection that I do in trying to step into the lens of folks who would be most impacted by that particular law or policy or the regulations that ensue from that policy. I think the other thing that I really adapted to both at the State Department as well as the U.S. Department of Ed is To understand why an individual, for example, or a group of individuals wants either a certain policy created or a law, because sometimes there's a work around it to get to what they need to get done. And a really good example of that is during the waivers that were given out at the Federal Office of Education, because I had a very good relationship with many of the state superintendents, the state chiefs, I would very often call and just say, tell me what it is you're trying to accomplish. And then be able to figure out, okay, here's a federal policy, or I know another state who's doing something very similar, and try to work with that individual to get to where they wanted before it became an issue. Because too often we'll react to a law or a process without thinking it through in terms of both its impact, or is there another way of getting to that same goal? You've mentioned a lot of things
2: that are you know, kind of critical social-emotional <laughs> skills, mm-hmm. the perspective-taking, and
3: and empathy. And, and empathy
2: and and also the assertiveness that's <laughs> sure. necessary to kind of move forward in your convictions. And one of the things you talked about is applying that lens sort of like what would be the worst that could happen here. And there's a lot of focus on SEL now. A lot of national attention is being gained there. And there was a, you know, the House approval of the $260 million for social emotional learning you know, kind of thinking in what you've done in the past and the way you like to apply those lenses, what should our national conversation be around social-emotional learning? What's the right frame for that um, at the national level for our country?
3: So I think one of the most important pieces is to think about the why behind the social-emotional learning and why is this suddenly, you know, popping up as so essential. And to me, it's been an essential tool, if you will, in the toolkit for all educators or any adult who should be working with students. And I think now as we think about you know, how do we prepare our kids for their future, we think about those skills, and I will not call them soft skills. I kind of resist that term because when you're having empathy and you're analyzing situations and information and you're relying on... A development of cooperation, for example, it does take mental integrity and mental thinking, you know, obviously, to work really well through those. So I think it's really when we think about building the future for our kids, we need to think of SEL as really an essential component of both productivity and promise. I use the word promise because I believe that every day, every adult who interacts with children and youth should give kids a hope for their future. And that's a promise that we give to them to the next generation. I think we should view it as growing a well-informed citizenry you know, having empathy for others, particularly with the diminishing of borders across our world. So with the influx of immigrants into our country, for example, it's really vital for us to stay informed, to gather the facts, to feel empathy for those individuals who are coming to the United States, for example, for a better life. And certainly the one thing I would say on the national scene is not to place this as a priority, similar to the way that we've done with academic achievement. I absolutely do not want us to get to the point where we're reporting out the social and emotional well-being of kids and even adults with whom they're working on a regular basis and then say, well, let's get a score for that. I think that would diminish the power of what we're trying to achieve, which is really for kids to feel good about themselves, for kids to understand what their talents are, and probably even more importantly, to grow those set of skills that are so essential to an increasingly global economy And to find themselves being able to adapt to a constantly changing world. So just
1: hearkening back to what you just said
3: about that you don't want to see that there's some score that gets reported
1: out about kids' social and emotional competence. You know, this is also something that we wrestle with, obviously, all the time at Committee for Children, because... There, of course, is some need to be assured that the programs are working, that kids are gaining skills. What are your thoughts on assessment?
3: So I think you start to look at what are the outcomes that you're intending to have. So, for example, if the school has an unusual amount of bullying or a community is finding themselves with kids who are just, you know, Unruly during off school hours, you can begin to monitor that in relationship to the work that's being done within the school itself. So, if a school is heavily engaged in social and emotional learning that's threaded throughout the day, you know, again, I don't want this to become every Friday at one o'clock, we're going to do some activity that's going to make you more socially acceptable in your community. But it's, you know, woven throughout lessons throughout the day and it's modeled by every adult in that building. You could begin to see and measure. Are the numbers of infractions on behavior, for example, decreasing? Do we have fewer fights in the school after a football game on Friday night? Are we recognizing that people are saying, wow, kids say please and thank you? Do we find within the classroom that students are able to work more collaboratively with one another? So I think rather than coming up with a score as to whether or not on a scale of one to 10, that Deb is more socially acceptable to others or whatever, we begin to look at what outcomes do we want as a result of the work that we're doing, and that's what should be measured.
2: So when you think about preparing educators for social-emotional learning instruction and weaving that throughout the day... What does it really mean for those educators to be ready to do that? What sorts of supports do you think need to be in place for them to be effective in that and think about their own social-emotional competencies and model that for
3: kids? Sure. Well, I think absolutely what's vital is that teacher education programs and even principal preparation programs, they really need to focus on the research behind SEL. So we know that when kids and uh, adults are engaged in a school in not only learning about seo but practicing those skills on a routine basis where they're becoming much more intuitive with those skills we know that it drives academic performance we know that kids feel better about themselves we know either from a mental health and a physical health that it actually has positive impacts on kids such as kindness so teachers in preparation programs have to understand that that was never taught to me i had you know human psychology and human development programs but it wasn't focused it didn't cross that bridge for me between the ultimate impacts of what you're doing every single day with kids. And what I worry about now, particularly over the last decade, is we've gotten so caught up in the academic achievement level of kids and getting that score at the end of the year and making the state report card for federal reporting processes, I really believe that we've gotten away from the essence of building relationships. So if I hearken back to those days when I want to you know, apologize to my 42 second graders, I want to apologize because I don't believe that I created as strong an academic program, but I can tell you by the end of the year, I had created very strong relationships with kids. So what I needed was for somebody to help me bridge that gap. It's important to build the relationships and simultaneously have high expectations for kids and then provide the academic supports for kids to believe that they could do more, better, you know, be deeper thinkers kind of thing. And now what we've learned from brain research that is so essential for all of that to come together. So that needs to be practiced with teachers. We need more lessons in how to go about it. We need more instruction and supports right on the ground level when teachers are struggling with that. I'm a huge, huge, huge supporter of professional learning activities. So I will always push hard to say we cannot diminish funds, whether at the federal level through Title II or at the local level, we simply cannot diminish funds that are set aside for teachers and principals to learn new skills, new information about brain research, understand the developmental stages of kids and how they learn best. And so, if we know, for example, that kids' brains develop in the adolescent years, at a much or equal to or second to the growth that they experience in zero to five, then we have to understand how to create instruction around that developmental model and not just forget about the emotional stuff, similar to what we talked about with middle schoolers, right? Not forget what those kids are going through at that point in time and build the relationships with them so that they can learn at higher rates. So it has to be this sort of dual pathway where suddenly they'll merge into a really productive and hopeful individual.
1: Well, so Deb, now speaking of policies in terms of teacher preparation and that, you know, you as the U.S. Assistant Secretary of Elementary and Secondary Education in the Obama administration have had the opportunity to influence policy. And during that time, what did you feel was your greatest accomplishment?
3: I came in on the tail end of the Race to the Top um, program and i was a recipient of one of those grants so i was able to see it from the standpoint of you know how do we create a state plan to ensure that all kids are exposed to highly effective educators And most importantly, create the kinds of culture in schools that I would want my own son to go to. And then I got to see it from the other standpoint, as how do you intervene when schools aren't capable or they don't have the resources necessary to actually improve at a rate that's significant enough for kids during that moment in time. So the School Improvement Grants is a really good example of that. And I think we did a really nice job of reaching out to states to figure out what is it Each individual state needed in order to be really successful. And while laws tend to come down from the federal level to be very much a cookie cutter approach, I think we did a really good job of reaching out to states and having them figure out how can they personalize that law so it was meaningful for their states at that moment in time.
1: So, you know, we have a different administration now. And so I am curious what you think
3: about good bipartisan SEL policy. So what I came to learn both at the state level and as well as this federal level is that bipartisanship really relies on people working collaboratively if I might add, working at high levels of social and emotional (laughs) levels, right, to reach the same goal. Maybe they end up taking a different pathway, but certainly having the same goal in mind and agreeing what's the end, and then trying to work through the murkiness of how do we get to that end goal and compromise a little bit on both sides. I think from a federal spending level, it's a little bit more difficult now. And I do think that there are some federal dollars that are needed in the SEL space. The reality is, is that, unless we can get those groups to come together and agree that the social and emotional well-being of our youth is absolutely essential to the future of our country, I don't know that we'll move there, right? But I do believe that it's possible. I mean, the work is not easy, but I do believe it's possible. I do believe that from the federal level, the bully pulpit is really essential. I never thought before going to Washington, D.C. myself that that was essential, but it is. By people standing up nationally and saying... You know, social and emotional learning is absolutely critical for the future of our country. Here are the reasons why, and here's what we're going to do collectively about it. Given my many years of experience, one of the things I always say to groups of people with whom I speak is, when you walk into a school or a classroom, kids don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. They care you're going to make the best decision possible at that moment in time for them then. They don't want to wait for one more report. They don't want to wait for a different person to be in the White House or in Congress or, you know, Senate in the House of Representatives. They want people right then and there to make the best decisions. They don't voice that, but that's what they want. So when I always think about traveling to schools, I always ask, is this school good enough for my own kid? Because if the answer to that question is no, I feel that we have an obligation to all kids to make that school the best it could be for them at that moment in time, that to me is the best essence of what bipartisanship can look like.
2: You know, there's a lot of excitement generated around SEL in the public and in schools, and and there's more funding that is available and has been in the past. And so as folks are working on policy and different groups are advocating for that, what would it look like in 20 years if we didn't get it right now?
3: If we don't get it right... I hope I'm not around to see (laughs) the mass exodus from the United States, you know, the world collapses in chaos or there's a lack of cohesion among mankind that actually threatens our existence. I just think, I hope that each of those presses upon everyone that there's an urgency to this work. There's an urgency because of the complexity of our world. We're finding kids have much more trauma than they did perhaps when I was growing up. And I think that we want every kid in our country to find fulfillment and purpose in their life, to make their hearts sore. That's what we should be thinking about every single day. And so if we find kids who are in trauma and find kids facing increasingly complex situations, whether it's violence or poverty We stand to lose their hearts and their hopes for the future. And I worry about our country for that.
1: Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, even just more in the near term, I think that those of us who've worked in this field for a long time, I feel like we've done a fairly
3: good job of keeping SEL from becoming too partisan, Mm -hmm. right? I totally would agree with you, yes. I mean, I don't think that we would question whether or not we want our kids to be happy or hopeful. I don't think we, you know, we question whether or not, whether that's considered a goal or an end result, right? But if we want our kids to be hopeful and productive and happy and actually healthy, both mentally and physically, we actually have to focus on this SEL issue, right? So I do think there's a little bit of a federal role to play in the part of perhaps galvanizing this sense of, whether it's sense of urgency, maybe I shouldn't call it that because it seems a little bit dismal, but perhaps there's this sense of optimism and a sense of energy and purpose around ensuring that our kids are mentally and physically healthy, and that's a direct result of their work in SEL and in their engagement and in their interactions on a daily basis. Having said that, what I would say is that I don't really want the federal government walking into classrooms and communities and saying exactly what those kids need. That's where I think we start to regulate so much that it becomes very formulaic And it doesn't consider the culture within that community, the priorities of the community, what does that community want for its own children, right? So there has to be this nice balance, and I think SEL can play that out. I think there's been a lot of good work done. Certainly, you know, at the Alliance, we have a big initiative around the science of adolescent learning. Castle is out of Chicago is really working hard on this consortium of academic, social, and emotional learning. And there are a variety of other organizations who are really looking at not just the research, but figuring out how do you bridge that gap from research to practice? And then even more importantly, how do you create networks among people who can share promising practices and also to help figure out how do you become well-versed in the topic of SEL or you know brain research so you understand how best to tailor or alter teaching and learning to those pieces of research? Making that bridge very comparable. So, I do think that there's great hope and energy. We just need to continue it along the line and not do anything in DC to thwart all of that effort and focus on the importance of SEL.
2: You just mentioned the Alliance for Excellent Education, and you have a role there that's fairly new. Mm-hmm. I'd love if you'd tell us a little more about the priorities of sure. uh, All for Ed.
3: Sure. So certainly this is my fifth month, I guess, now. So I'm maybe getting over the hurdle of being totally new. But I think one of my priorities is to really respect the history, particularly all of the work that Governor Bob Wise did in establishing the alliance as a very strong foothold in both the policy space as well as in the practice space. So certainly that's number one. And then always to keep equity at the heart of every single thing that we do, ensuring that we influence both federal and state policies and the rollout or the evolution of those policies into practices, ensuring that our work on brain research and the science of adolescent learning continues and has an impact significantly into practices of everyday practitioners and perhaps influencing in the future, you know, teacher and principal preparation programs. And then preparing kids for an increasing technological world and so we have our Future Ready Schools initiative and preparing kids for their future, not our present through that work and demonstrating a need and a possible pathway to changing into a more personalized learning environment for kids. So they have, so their voices are heard and they have choices about what they learn and how they learn and when they learn. So all of that rolls back up into our need to ensure that every student who graduates from high school is well-prepared for productivity and for following their dreams and hopes in the future, whether that's at a four-year university, whether it's at a college, whether it's at a uh, licensing program, but always ensure that every kid graduates from high school with the tools and skills and dispositions and attitudes to follow what they want to pursue in the future.
2: How do you think about the relationship between social-emotional learning and equity and sort of addressing the needs of underserved communities?
3: So one thing I really want to be sure is to be very clear about how we define underserved communities. So for example, very often in my prior roles, people would immediately gravitate toward large urban centers as being underserved. And yet if you think about them, they have a tremendous wealth of resources available to them. How they're being underserved is the fact that those resources may not necessarily be sequenced or stitched together in such a way that people understand, especially those people who are close to kids, such as teachers and principals, that those resources are actually available and what their intent is in serving that community. So there needs to be a lot of work in large urban centers about almost harnessing those resources in ways that are much better known among educators and the adults who are interacting with those students. And then I don't want to forget our rural and isolated regions It's more than a quarter of our students, I think it may be pushing a third of our students are actually educated in rural and isolated communities. And I worry about those communities because they don't have access to the types of resources that urban centers do. And so I always bring that lens into this role here to be sure that when we're talking about equity, we're talking about finding out who are the most distant and the farthest from opportunity, who are the kids who are most vulnerable because resources aren't readily available to them, whether it's It's because they don't know how to be harnessed or they're not available physically present within the community, but always having that lens toward equity and trying to understand in individual states and communities themselves, what is it that that community needs more than anything else? So to view it from a very broad lens and then to personalize it according to what that city or state happens to need in that community. Never, ever forgetting the rural and isolated regions. It's too easy to do that.
2: Yeah, where I grew up, I'm from Kentucky. So it's a a (laughs) lot of rural (laughs) areas there. I I grew up in the third largest city in Kentucky, which is laughably small to people who... Grew uh, up in Los Angeles or
3: Boston? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: The things that they faced, the challenges were quite different. And they did feel they didn't have access to the kinds of programs and recreational opportunities. There was a lot of support for going into the military and working on farms and factories. And that was kind of the pathway (laughs) for a lot of um, kids. Not that everyone ended up doing that, or that there's anything wrong in doing Mm -hmm. any of that. But it was sort of like, these are the things you can do. There wasn't a universe of things available. So I think about that a lot, because we hear a lot about rural schools and how they don't have the kind of supports and access that urban districts do have. So, I think that's growing in prominence. I'm glad you mentioned it here. We hear about it more and more. We do yeah. and we hear
1: you know that there's a lot of promise in technology to be able to at least in some virtual way in bringing people together to create relationships
3: that might not have been able to be created in the past. Yeah, I think technology can be a great solution, right? So one of the big pieces of work we do through our Future Ready Schools program is helping educators to identify the best way possible to use tools, you know, virtually to access uh, museums, for example. So really employing appropriate instructional strategies to use technology as a tool. And so our Future Ready Schools is really dependent on schools changing instructional practices, for example, and changing their pedagogy about what does the teacher do within that classroom? Does he or she become a facilitator of knowledge or the imparter of knowledge? And digital tools can certainly help that. And part of that goal was to have very small rural school districts combine their resources for professional development, for example, or even in advanced classes for kids. So all of those schools cannot rely on having an advanced placement courses, a multitude of those classes across the schools, but now virtually they're able to connect and have, let's say, an advanced placement physics teacher in one school, but extend those lessons out to a variety of schools, 27, 30 schools at a time, so that they're bridging that divide through technology and also through some even mentorships. I've seen virtual mentorships where kids are hopping on and they're finding maybe somebody in their desired pathway of science and finding somebody who could be a mentor to them virtually. So what's critical about that is to not stop at, well, we don't have the resources available within a 15-minute drive, but to say, okay, we recognize we don't, so therefore, how do we overcome that and how do we use technology in a very thoughtful and productive way for kids to engage and understand that there's a world beyond their streets in their community? Every kid needs to be respected and, you know have their talents attended to within a school district. It just means that there's a different way to go about doing it in a rural community versus a a suburban district or even an urban district. So now people are gathering together around those typologies. And that's pretty exciting to learn from one another.
2: It's not always the case that kindness is related to social emotional learning and in, in conversation. And the name of our podcast is Grow Kinder. We care about kindness. Our work is in social emotional learning space. I'm curious how What does kindness really mean to you and have you witnessed any acts of kindness recently?
3: that you share sure. with us. So I actually think kindness is an essential component of SEL because I think kindness also stems from a view of empathy and feeling for others and reaching out to people. Because very often when you're kind to somebody, not when it's expected of you, not when mom says, oh, make sure you say thank you. While that's kind, that may be establishing a pattern of how you behave to be kind to other people. But when you feel for somebody else and you thank them or you reach out to do something for somebody else that's not expected of you, I just think it's a healthy way to live. And I have to believe, and you know, if you review the research on this, people will say that people who express kindness routinely, they're happier people, they're healthier people, and there's probably a lot of connections we can make through that. I see kindness a lot of times and I try really hard, whether I'm flying, to express kindness to people because you know that when you're kind to somebody, they may relate to you better. I feel like I've become this kindness, lifeguard, if you will. But I managed to say thank you to people who've done a kindness to somebody else. And oftentimes people are surprised at that. And I may say to them, you know, thank you for helping that woman up the stairs with her bag because clearly she needed help or I'm really sorry you have to deal with that today. I'm sure you're really anxious or I'm sure you're really tired. And just knowing that you almost see their body language Mm -hmm. is kind of like, "Ah, somebody recognizes someone like that, right? You know, I had an incredible personal experience over the last two weeks of a 28-year-old niece who's facing a medical crisis. And the numbers of people who responded was just amazing. And if you think about the kindness that's been extended to them as a family. So my niece's husband just started a new job. And so he's really low on time available to help his wife out. Well, one person, just one person donated I can get teary- 40 hours for him. Hmm. I'm getting hmm. teary-eyed saying this, but yeah. I, I apologize. But that's the kind of people who step forward when you least expect it. Now, you can imagine the emotional toll that that's taken on our family. But even more importantly... You can tell that this woman, she doesn't really know him very well. And she stepped forward and said, you know what? I could give up a week of my time. I could work and you could have my vacation time. And then multiple people stepped up. So every day I'm encouraged by kindness. I just wish it would extend nationally. And that's not a political statement. It's just, I really wish everyone would just take a step back and figure out that person may be having a really hard day. So rather than my you know, complaining because my flight is delayed or the coffee person, the barista, who's just trying to make a living, you know, had put ice in my coffee when I wanted a hot coffee. Just think about the world would be so much better if we just took a step back and just tried to figure out what that other person's life is like at this moment in time.
1: Mm-hmm. Words of truth and wisdom. Thank you. With a few tears, I
3: apologize. (laughs) No, it's weird.
2: That's part of being emotionally healthy. (laughs) It really
1: is. And you're being very
2: kind, by the
3: way, on the Kindness (laughs) Podcast to me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have been so happy to talk to you today. And we'd love it if you could tell our listeners where they can learn a little more
3: about the Alliance for Excellent Education and your work. Sure. I would love to do that. So hopefully everyone will go on our website, which is all for ed A-L-L, the number four, ed.org. And I'm going to make a big push for going on and being able to check out our, it's called Our Challenge, Our Hope. And this is a significant initiative we're doing this year to extend the hope of uh, Brown versus Board of Education, which was its 65th anniversary. And as a result of that, people are sharing incredible stories, both their challenges as well as their hope. That they've experienced in everyday life and certainly in education. So you'll find a lot of very touching stories on that. wonderful.org. Um, yeah, we're definitely yeah yeah. Do that. yeah. <laughs> looking, Please looking go forward on to and, that,
1: yeah
3: yeah. Check out. We have videos on there. We have um, some great people who are talking about their challenges and their hopes. And we have a wonderful student who wrote a poem. You can see the video of John Eke on that as well. As a result of that, and and why I'm saying that is because it so extends, especially when you see John Eek and other poems on the just empathy, and social and emotional learning is embedded within this whole initiative. And then another link I will give you is all for ed A-L-L, the number four, org backslash SAL, S-A-L. And that's our science of adolescent learning, which so ties into what we were talking about today. Excellent. Perfect. Well, so, we
2: really appreciate all the work that you've done in integrating social emotional learning into your work and supporting that through policy and action. And we wish only success
3: in thank your you. the priorities and in your new role.
2: Yeah, we'll stay
3: in touch and uh, let's be sure that we each spread kindness among us. Yes. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Deborah Delisle, President and CEO of the Alliance for Excellent Education. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org. And if you enjoyed our conversation today, make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher.